Welcome to the Anchor Podcast, a ministry of Rock Harbor Church. We want to help you grow in your walk with the Lord by an in-depth study of the Word of God. So grab your Bible and let's set a course for spiritual maturity. Here's Pastor Brandon with today's message. Revelation 15, entitled, It Gets Worse Before It Gets Better. That principle is throughout Scripture, especially in the issue of prophecy. It gets worse before it gets better because Jesus described it as birth pains. That as we get closer to the end and closer to the return of the Messiah, the birth pains would happen. And as you know, birth pains get more frequent and they get more intense and they are painful, but it leads to something new, a new birth, what we know as the Messianic Kingdom. But unfortunately, we're in that time era of birth pains and things are getting worse and it will continue to get worse before it gets better. Now, that's not a message that's easily to sell to people. That's not a message that people want to hear. It's a kind of a doom and gloom as they term it out there in La La Land. They say, well, that's just doom and gloom talk. No, it's just reality. And you and I are aware of what's happening around our society and around our culture. And it's getting worse and worse. And that's where the principle comes from. If you and I expect Jesus to return... And if we expect the tribulation to happen after he takes us home, and then after that, the messianic kingdom, well, it's supposed to get worse. We're not going to see society get any better. Do you and I really think that California is going to get its head screwed on straight and really clean up its act? No, we're going to be in Venezuela here pretty soon if California doesn't get things fixed. And you think in terms of like education, many of you are educators. Do you really think we're going to have enough people to get in there and change the Department of Education, change the educational system, the NEA and other organizations like that? No, it's too far gone. You think about immigration. We've talked about that. Just use this as as an example. I was listening to an immigration expert on this. His name is Michael Cutler. He's INS special agent, retired. And he is saying both parties of the United States are not going to fix illegal immigration and get immigration reform because both parties want it. He goes, I worked for immigration all these years. I saw it. Both the Republicans and Democrats are not going to stop what's happening. The idea then is, what is the United States going to turn into? Europe is have a complete replacement of populations. And again, don't get me wrong, we're not against immigration. We're against the legal immigration, and we're against whole societies transplanting themselves into other societies. Ask yourself about this. Is the media ever going to get figured out? Is the media ever going to stop doing the fake news and CNN's going to say, you know what, we repent in sackcloth and ashes and bless God, we're going to tell the truth now. You think they're really going to do that? Think of the political arena. You think politicians are getting any better or getting worse? I hate to be a downer on that, but, but here's the point. It does get worse before it gets better. This is the way that it's predicted to go. And we're going to look at some pronouncements in chapter 15 of Revelation that talk about this and tells you why it has to get worse before it gets better. And then we're going to take the spiritual application about this and then apply it to our personal lives. And you'll see how that will work out in our own walk with the Lord. 
So take it for what it's worth. There's a reason why things must get worse before they get better. So let's start in chapter 15, verse 1, and we'll go through all of this. And it says this in verse 1, Then I saw another sign in heaven. Now again, this is in the midpoint of the tribulation, at the three and a half year mark. We're in the pronouncement sections. This is, you know, not in chronology, but this is a pronouncement about what's getting ready to happen as far as the the bold judgments that are getting ready to get poured out. I saw another great sign in heaven. Great and marvelous is the way John interprets this, this sign in heaven. And the idea is why it's great and marvelous is that the bold judgments that are getting ready to get poured out, and it's the worst judgments that ever hit planet Earth and humanity, will establish the second coming and establish the millennial reign of the Messiah and will get rid of the satanic kingdom that Satan has set up through the Antichrist. So that's why he says it's great and marvelous because of what the bold judgments are going to do. The administers of it obviously are in the text. Seven angels having seven last plagues, for in them the wrath of God is complete. The idea of seven obviously is a symbol of perfection. With these seven last bold judgments, they will complete God's judgment on humanity and usher in the messianic kingdom. So they're perfect in nature in what they accomplish. Angels will do this. They are the agents of pouring out these bold judgments. We'll see this in a few weeks from now. And having seven last plagues. Notice that the bold judgments are called plagues. Now, it's not like it's a sickness, but it's what's called the judicial inflicted pain. Judicial inflicted pain by God. Humanity deserves this. The Antichrist, the false prophet, they all deserve it. For in them the wrath of God is complete. The, the outward expression of God's anger in wrath is now made complete by bringing this all to a head. What I want to do is I, I gave you a handout. And again, I'm not going to go through all of this. I just wanted to make this available to you. In your handout, I put the purposes of the tribulation. I'm just going to briefly go through it. The reason John is saying these are great and marvelous and these bold judgments are going to inflict judicial punishment on humanity is because they're going to usher in these elements, which are positive. And as you can see, the purpose of the tribulation, the the first one is for Israel. The great tribulation is called Jacob's trouble. And look at all the things that will happen to benefit Israel. Israel's going to go through the ringer. They're going to go through extreme pain. Two-thirds of Israel is going to be cut off by the Antichrist. And they're going to go through the worst time ever. But according to Daniel chapter 12, the reason for this is to break their power so they will accept Messiah and be nationally regenerated. And so you can see all the benefits that Israel will get from these bold judgments. Then you move down to the Gentiles. Again, we're not here for this. This is the tribulation Gentiles. But it's going to offer salvation to them. There's going to be a great revival. It's also going to purge wicked unbelievers. And then there's going to be a judgment of the Gentiles of how they treated Israel during that period of time. Then you move to Satan and the demons, and this is all that it's going to accomplish. It's going to destroy mystery Babylon. It's going to destroy political Babylon. It's going to destroy lawlessness that we see even today. It's going to destroy 
the lawless one, the Antichrist, and the false prophet. And so it accomplishes a lot even in the demonic realm. And then lastly, in general, it will demonstrate to mankind and the angelic realm that without the Holy Spirit restraining man, the sin nature of man will rebel to unprecedented lawlessness and unrighteousness. And so everything just goes crazy in the tribulation. And God is showing this and demonstrating this is what happens when man gets unbridled. When there's no restraint put on him, he goes crazy and does all these things and worships the Antichrist and whatnot. So there's a lot behind there. You can take that home and kind of study it a little bit more in depth. But this is why this proclamation says it is great and marvelous because it will accomplish all of these things. Now let's go back to the text real quick. And it says this, And I saw something like a sea of glass mingled with fire. So here's a a picture of what it looks like in heaven in the throne room of God. There's this sea, crystal sea or an expanse that's like glass or crystal that they stand on that's in the throne room. And it has the appearance of fire mingled in it. Now, to understand the symbolic meaning of this, this is literally what's in heaven, no doubt about it, but it has symbolic meaning. You have to go back to the Old Testament to understand the symbolic meaning and the New Testament for that matter. The sea of glass is associated to the laver in the tabernacle. You remember, you would go to the burnt offering first and then you would go to the laver before you entered into the, the holy place and the holy of holies. And that labor is where the priests would wash their hands and wash their feet as they ministered before the Lord in the tabernacle. And it was a sea of glass. It, had, it was water, but it was made out of brass. And so it had the idea of crystal clear water and fire symbolized with the brass. What does that mean? What is the symbol of that? Well, that God is so holy, represented by the clear crystal glass... And righteous, but it has an element of fire in it, which means that his holiness and righteousness must be avenged. God cannot turn a blind eye to sin and to wickedness. Therefore, because he is holy, there must be an element of judgment on humanity and the fallen angels. A little bit more in depth about this. The water, or it looks like a sea of glass, it's referred to the sea. The water also represents cleansing. It also represents judgment. The fire represents judgment, but the fire also represents cleansing as well. Both elements of water and fire are cleansing elements and judgment elements. I want you to see that. Now, if you go to Noah's flood, in the first cataclysmic worldwide judgment, God judged the world by water, right? The water is what judged humanity. It also cleansed the earth of unrighteousness. But it also delivered the people on the ark. As they sat in the ark, the ark delivered them through. They were delivered through the water. Just like Moses and the Red Sea, the Red Sea parted and Israel was delivered through the water. So water represents not only judgment, but deliverance as well. Okay? If you go to fire, 
The tribulation is known as a time of judgment through fire. And so the other cleansing element and judgmental element is fire. But also, as Noah and his family were delivered through the water, representing Israel, Israel will be delivered through the fire of the tribulation as well. So you have both elements there on the the sea of glass mingled with fire. Judgment and deliverance. Judgment and deliverance. Those who do not repent and come to faith in Messiah will be judged by the fire or the water, so to speak. And those who do accept him will be delivered from the fire or the water, per se. And you'll see this in just a second in the text. So that's the message and the symbolic nature of what you're seeing with the sea of glass mingled with fire. Move on to the victory of those who are delivered from this. And those who have the victory over the beast, over his image, over his mark, and over the number of his name, notice the position of them standing on the sea of glass, having harps of God. Let's unpack that. What you're looking at then are martyred saints who were killed or died because they refused to take the mark of the beast. As you recall last week, the midpoint of the tribulation, the Antichrist will force everybody to take his mark. And if you don't take that mark, it's a death sentence. These individuals, these tribulation saints, refuse to take his mark. Therefore, they can't buy or sell. They can't get food. They can't get water. So a lot of them will just simply die of starvation or some type of malnutrition or they just can't get water. And many of them will be hunted down and killed for not taking the mark and not playing the game. But yet they have victory because they were delivered Because notice the position, they're standing on the sea of glass mixed with fire. Do you see what's happening? It is a picture of deliverance because they're being upheld by the sea of glass. They're not being crushed or destroyed by the sea of glass. They're being upheld, which means they've been delivered. Just as Noah was delivered, and just like these tribulation saints, we're delivered. Now, here's the thing. You're like, well, that doesn't sound like they were delivered. They died. Ah, yes, you're looking at that through human eyes. But from divine standpoint, death is not considered defeat. To be martyred by the Antichrist is not defeat. That's not how God looks at death. He looks at this as being delivered and they're with him, even though the Antichrist took their physical life. Because God's the God of life, and he can give their lives right back and resurrect them, in which he will do. Notice they have in their hands harps of God. It's kind of like a, a small guitar, like a small banjo. It's what David played a lot. And it's a symbol of victory. They're actually holding symbols of victory, even though they were martyred, despite all that they went through. This is a hellish nightmare that they went through, and yet God says, you're victorious. Notice the song they sing. And every time you'll see people in heaven, they'll sing their own particular song. Verse 3, they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and they also sing the song of the Lamb. Now, what's this about? Again, it's, it's all songs of deliverance. 
I told you a couple weeks ago or even last week that you will sing your own song of deliverance of how God delivered you out of this life. But the song of Moses it goes back to Exodus 15, Deuteronomy 32. This is what the children of Israel sang as God delivered them out of Egypt. And they sing that song and they sing the song of the Lamb, which is the song of redemption you'll see in chapter 5 of Revelation. Why are the two songs together? Why is the issue of, of what happened with Moses related to the tribulation saints? Ah, good question. It's a typology. A typology that happened in Egypt with Pharaoh points forward to the tribulation Israel that gets delivered from the Antichrist. What's the parallels? And I think I've mentioned this before. When Moses went to Pharaoh before Egypt, Egypt represents the world. Pharaoh represents the future Antichrist. Moses represents the deliverer, the Messiah, and obviously, Israel represents future Israel. So when you look and read about Moses and what happened with him, you will notice striking similarities with what will happen in the tribulation. In fact, many of the judgments in the book of Revelation that happened worldwide happened on a micro scale to Egypt. You will see the plague of darkness again in the bold judgments. Notice how the waters have been turned to blood in the tribulation. That's what happened to Egypt, right? You'll see parallels between the tribulation and the plagues of Egypt. And again, they were called plagues, right? We call them the plagues of Egypt, and then the angels call in these, or John is, plagues as well. So it points forward, and that's why they sing the song of Moses and the song of the Lamb. Now, the overarching theme of the song is deliverance deliverance. Your song one day that you'll sing is a song of deliverance, how God delivered you from this wicked world. And that's what they're saying. And here are some of the, the lyrics saying, great and marvelous are your works. Again, there's that term great and marvelous for what it's accomplishing. And I gave you that handout for what it accomplishes. Lord God Almighty, he is the one that's almighty, not Antichrist. Just and true are your ways. You're righteous to do these judgments. O King of the saints, who shall not fear you, O Lord, and glorify your name? The answer is no one anymore. For too long, humanity has not feared the Lord. For too long, humanity has shaken its fist to God, daring God to do something. Daring God, if you're so powerful, then stop us. Stop us from committing what the crimes and sins we're doing. Our society is basically sh shaking its fist in God's face by kicking him out. They're asking for judgment. And when he does give it, there won't be anyone left. He will purge the earth of unbelievers, of wickedness, of evildoers. And so the, the, the refrain of this is... There won't be anyone on this planet when he's all said and done with his judgment. There won't be anyone on this planet that won't glorify him and worship him. They will all be purged from planet earth is the answer to this. And they say, for you alone are holy. You're other than human. 
So many people in our society make God into another superhuman being, and he's not. He is holy, which means he's different. He's other than, and he's righteous. For all the nations shall come and worship before you. And that's the term that we saw with Isaiah and even in Philippians, that every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Yahweh, and they will bow before him whether they like it or not. He will force them to do it. And it says, for your judgments have been manifested. So basically, they've dared God to do it. Now he's delivering, and they will see it, and they will acknowledge that it is God doing it. They won't like it. In fact, we'll see many times in the book of Revelation, they blaspheme God every time he sends judgments to them. Well, they asked for it, and now they're mad at him for that, I guess. That's the way the human heart works, desperately wicked. Verse 5, and after these things I looked, and behold, the temple of the tabernacle of the testimony in heaven was opened. So yes, they're in heaven. There is a real tabernacle. It's the tabernacle that Moses saw and patterned the wilderness tabernacle off of. And in this tabernacle, I want you to notice, it's the tabernacle of testimony in heaven, and it was opened. Now, the tabernacle of testimony is another way of saying the temple of God. But notice the word testimony is attached to it. Even Moses' tabernacle was called the tabernacle of testimony. What testimony? What is he possibly referring to? Let's go back to the tabernacle with Moses. What was in the Ark of the Covenant? Aaron's rod, remember that. The pot of manna. And there was a third item. The commandments, the Ten Commandments, right? The stone tablets. That's the testimony. And what does the testimony say? That these are the righteous standards of God. These are the laws of God. And sinful man can't keep them. Hence, he needs a redeemer who can keep the law for him and give him that life in exchange and get forgiveness through the shed blood of the Lamb of God. You know the story. And I've told you this before. When you think about the Ark of the Covenant, I want you to think from the vertical standpoint. Not from the standpoint of the sides of it, but stand from the standpoint of where the Shekinah glory would look down upon the tabernacle. Do you remember that? I think I went through that before. Looking down from God, what you would see is the lid... But upon the lid, the high priest would have to put blood on the mercy seat on the top. So as God looks down, he sees through blood. If you take the lid off, what is in there are the broken commands that the Israelites broke. So if you start from the commands, you're looking back and you're saying, okay, man has broken the commands... Aaron's rod represents resurrection. The manna represents provision. I can provide for man, and he can have new life, resurrection. How will I provide? Move one step back. On the mercy seat, where mercy is given, I will apply the blood. And it is the blood that will make the provision so they can live again for breaking my commands. You see the message Vertically, as you work down and up through the Ark of the Covenant. That's why it's termed in heaven the Ark of the Testimony. God has eternal laws. Not just the Mosaic law. He has eternal laws 
that not only Satan and the angelic realm, the fallen angels have broken, but all humanity has broken. It is a testimony that man needs a savior because the broken laws. And the idea is it's opened. Because now humanity has been given all the chances they could possibly have been given to come to faith in Messiah and rectify the situation, be reconciled to God through Messiah, and humanity, for the most part, has turned its back on God and says, we don't want you to rule over us. We want to do things our way, and we don't care if we broke your laws. We don't care if you've made a provision through your son. We don't care. We want to create our own kingdom without you. Well, guess what? Not happening. You're not going to have paradise without the Prince of Peace. You're not going to have the kingdom without the king. Not happening. So in verse 6, For out of the temple came seven angels having seven plagues, clothed in bright linen, and having their chests girded with golden bands. So now these agents who are going to administer the bold judgments are going to come out from the temple. Why is that important? They're emanating from where God is, and the message is, these judgments are coming from me. These angels will be doing my bidding and pouring this out on sinful humanity. Time is up. Grace has been given, mercy has been given, and you have spurned it. Now they're coming out to do this. And notice that they're clothed in bright linen. That represents righteousness and righteous acts. That all these judgments are righteous, even though they, the humanity will blaspheme God. Have you noticed, even today, when bad things happen to people, they want to blame God for it? They always want to blame God for their problems, don't they? They're looking for someone to blame. Well, they're going to try to do it, but the angels represent, no, what's happening to you is righteous. And notice that their chests have golden bands around their chest. Obviously, gold represents the glory of God and, and deity, that God is doing this. But notice the bands are around the angels, and they're girded by them. The idea is, yes, these are coming from God. It represents the glory of God, and will give glory to God. But even to this extent, the judgments are restrained. God could totally obliterate everyone in an instant if he wanted to. He could just wipe us all out just like that. But he even restrains the worst judgments to hit humanity. He restrains it to some extent. Because he knows if it went any further, all humanity would be just completely wiped out and obliterated. And he doesn't do that. He even restrains them even at the very end. It's amazing. That's the mercy of God and grace of God. Verse 7. Then one of the four living creatures, these are the guardian throne cherub that are around the throne, gave to the seven angels seven bowls full of wrath, the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. So there's an exchange from the guardian cherubs to these agents that are going to issue the bowl judgments. Verse 8, the temple was filled with smoke, or this is the glory cloud, from the glory of God and from his power. And no one was able to enter the temple till the seven plagues of the seven angels were completed. Now, let's unpack that just a bit. The smoke 
is reference to the glory cloud. When God appeared at night, it was a, a flame of fire many times. During the day with Israel, it was a cloud or it was considered smoke. And every time, even in the tabernacle or the temple, when God came down, the smoke would fill the tabernacle and the priests couldn't work. They had to stop doing what they were doing. God was present and he was doing his activity. That's extremely important because what he's doing now is his activity. And notice how no one is able to enter the temple in heaven. All work has ceased because this is the work that God is doing and no one is allowed to do anything else. He is the one doing it. And what's happening here is the smoke is a symbol of I am not allowing anyone in right now because I am not having fellowship with any sin at this point in time until I deal with sin right now. I am dealing with it. I need everyone out of the way. I need the house cleared, so to speak, and I'm going to deal specifically with sinful humanity at this point in time. It is just a way of saying, all work stops. I'm starting to work like I did in creation. And it's about dealing with sin. Everything. No one's permitted in. I'm dealing with this. And so it's kind of a pause in the angelic realm. It's a pause with even in us in heaven. We'll be there. And everything just comes to a standstill as God deals with it. What is he dealing with? He's purging. He's purging. He's getting rid of evil off the planet. He's destroying unbelieving people. He's taking their lives, and he has every right to do it. He is cleansing the planet, getting it ready for the millennial reign of the Messiah. Very, very hard stuff that you'll see in the next chapter is going to come out and emanate from God. But this is the pronouncements of this. What's the application about this? Because this is a difficult passage, very difficult passage. It's going to get worse before it gets better. That's the message of the whole chapter. It gets worse before it gets better. And God must do certain things in order to ensure that it does get better. Again, I refer back to the birth pains. And you see our society on the geopolitical level getting worse and worse and worse. And you all can understand that. And, and we, we get that. Apostasy is going to get worse. It's not going to get better. More and more people will fall away from the faith. We should expect that. And the remnant that truly believes the word of God will get smaller and smaller. I was joking around with John Haller one time about the remnant. And he goes, he goes I'm telling you what, the remnant's getting so small, I know everybody's name in it. And, he, and I'm like, yeah, you're right, I get that. It is getting smaller and smaller. People that you used to trust... People that you used to watch on TV that were legitimate and good have fallen off the rails. And you think, what happened, man? Pastors that you knew that were legit, all of a sudden, they're in some wackadoo thing all of a sudden. It's apostasy. And so we're going to see all this. We're going to see more demonic activity. We're going to see all kinds of stuff in our society go the way it's going. And it's going to be very troubling for you and I. But I'm going to tell you this on a geopolitical level as you watch this happen. Do not check out of reality. Do not check out. A lot of Christians see it and they want to pretend that it's not happening. 
and they bury their head in the sand, or they go to a church that's just going to tell them it's all, you know, dancing through the tulips, and it's, it's uh, butterflies, and, and rainbows, and, and shamrocks, and, and just all being great. And what are we having for lunch today, man? This is your best life today. And that becomes appealing to a lot of people, because they're like, I, I want to escape reality. I don't want to live in the world that's crumbling right before me. I don't want to think that our country has a debt problem, that the state of California has a debt problem. Okay, well, it's going to happen whether you acknowledge it or not. We're just saying as believers, we're supposed to be in reality. And a lot of you are tracking with that, and that's why you come here, and you get that. But then let's move to the personal level. What do you mean? It gets worse before it gets better in our walk with the Lord. What do you mean? Well, all of us want that abundant life that Jesus promised. All of us want to be free from besetting sins that keep dragging us down and kicking us in the pants. We want to be free of it. All of us want more self-control over the way we behave. All of us want a better attitude. All of us want to grow closer to the Lord. We want that abundant life. There's no believer in here that wouldn't say that. Yes, you're right. We do. But God is saying, if you want to get there, it's going to get worse before it gets better, though. Oh, that's not fun. Yeah, no. But if you want the abundant life, you're going to have to pay the cost. See, we're not talking about salvation. Jesus paid your cost for salvation. We're talking about the abundant life, the, the life of spiritually mature believers. That's what we're talking about. I'm not talking about salvation. And if I take my cues from what God is doing in the tribulation, there's two main principles that he's working with, and he works with us individually if you want things to get better in your personal life. What do you mean? If you notice, in the book of Revelation, God is dealing with two facets that he's purging out of the planet. He's dealing with the external, and he's dealing with the internal. He's breaking down the societal systems of economics, man, man's economics, uh, uh, commercial Babylon. He's taking away the religious man-made constructs of religion. That's an external structure. He's taking that down. He's taking down the external politics, the Antichrist and the Ten Kings. He's taking those down. He's taking away every external construction of man. It must be purged. So you and I see the external construction. We see politics. We see globalism. We see how people are functioning. We see the educational system. What God is saying, it's not, it's not fixable anymore. There's no way to redeem it. I've got to break it down. I've got to destroy it. It's not fixable. That's what the message of Revelation is to the external structures. The religion of man is so bad, it has to be destroyed. The political system of man has to be destroyed. The economic system has to be destroyed. It's all the externals. It's called the world system must be purged from planet earth and you and i are in the world system we know how it functions and we don't like it it's getting uglier and uglier so what does that mean for you and i brandon 
It means if you want to go to the abundant life, if you want that freedom in Christ, he says, I've got to break down your external structures, Brandon. What do you mean? The way you're functioning, Brandon, is that you have external structures in your life, the way you live. You don't even are not conscious of this. But you have sugar sticks. You have things that help you escape reality. You have things that are your go-to to get you to not deal with your issues. You medicate with this structure. You want to feel good about yourself, so you do this to make you feel good about yourself, Brandon. If you, Brandon, want to go to the abundant life, you must surrender your external structures to me. Oh, what? I've got to break you down just like I have to break the Babylon down. You can't keep functioning in your external structures. Yeah, but I don't know any other way of life. You're functioning according to the old man, the old nature. I gave you a new nature, Brandon, and it has a different way of functioning, and you simply won't go there because you like your old structures, and your old structures are killing you at the same time. So what do I got to do? Surrender them to me. Surrender your external, surrender your medication, the way you're escaping, everything you're using in your life to keep you propped up. It's fake. It's not real. It's a counterfeit. Just like the Antichrist is a counterfeit, just like the Whore of Babylon's a counterfeit, I need you to get up the counterfeits and go to the real thing. That's going to be very painful. Yes, it will, Brandon. It will be very painful. But just like the tribulation saints, they gave up their lives for me. They're holding harps. They're on the sea of glass. Represent they gave up their lives. They were willing to die because they wouldn't succumb to the structure of the Antichrist of buying and selling with his mark. They gave it up. How come you can't, Brandon? You're not living in the tribulation. You're living in a very easy time to live, and yet you won't give it up, Brandon. You see the game? You see the game that's being played? We're all doing it. We're all doing it. Yeah, but this is the way I've been functioning all my life. Yeah, it's called hell. You live in a hellish experience. Yeah, but God, I know the street signs in hell, so I know how to navigate through hell a little bit. That's why it's so hard to give up. Yeah, I know, but you're living in hell. This is not the way I designed your life to live. See, I'm not talking about salvation. I'm talking about sanctification. I'm talking about becoming more like Christ. Our structures must be demolished. In order to get to that new life. That's the first aspect. Did you notice what else is going on in the tribulation? He's purging not only the external structures. He's purging the internal problems. What do you mean? By the time it's all said and done. Jesus comes back. Sheep and goat judgment. And we go into the millennial reign. There are no unbelievers. Who will set foot on planet earth. In the kingdom age. To start with, no unbeliever is allowed to go into the kingdom. Now, kids will be born. They'll have their own choice. They'll have to make for Jesus during the kingdom age. But no human being enters the kingdom who is unsaved. Because the tribulation is to eliminate all unbelief, Jew or Gentile. They're eliminated. They're wiped off the face of the planet. 
by the time of the second coming. And if they survive the tribulation, then Jesus takes their lives and sends them to hell. We'll see that at the end. What are you talking about? See, that's the internal structure. What do you mean? That's the belief part. Well, that's amazing. So God is taking in the tribulation all the away the external structures, and he's taking away the unbelief structure, which is an internal. So you're saying then that's what he's going to have to do to me in order to get me to the abundant life? That's exactly what I'm saying. Not only are you and I going to have to give up the external structures that keep propping us up, keeping us in this hellish nightmare of the unabundant life, no joy, we feel blah, we're going to have to give up our unbelief and come to true belief. Now you're saying, I already believe in Jesus. That's not what I'm talking about. I know you already believe in Jesus. I'm saying you don't trust and I don't trust Jesus for certain things. Pockets of unbelief. Categories of unbelief in our walk with him. And it prevents us from going to the abundant life. That he could meet my needs. A lot of Christians don't believe Jesus can meet their needs for daily bread, so to speak. So that's why they turn to drugs. That's why they turn to alcohol. That's why they turn to sex addiction. That's why they turn to porn. Because he can't meet my needs, so i got to have a need met. So I turn to these alternatives because I don't believe he can meet my needs. And God is saying, Brandon, if you're going to go to the next level, you've got to give up this distrust in me. Why don't you trust me? You have to purge this unbelief, Brandon, out of your life to get to that level. And that's a hard one. But that's what's happening in tribulation. That's what he's doing. Breaking the external and breaking the internal. So this is a hard one. And he gives us a choice in sanctification, okay? Just like in salvation, he gives us a choice. You either accept Christ or you don't. And in this decision... For sanctification, if you want to go further down the path, you have to say, okay, break my systems down. I I acknowledge that I have unbelief in pockets of this area of my life, and I have to have new belief. I I have to function differently. I have to submit to your purging, which is the most difficult thing imaginable that I, you have to purge me, Father. And I'm going to have to go through pain. And he's like, yeah, I know. But if you don't, I want you to think, Brandon, of the alternative. The alternative is, yes, you will be saved, but you'll never grow. You'll never serve me at the capacity that you were created for. You're limiting yourself because, you know, you have all these issues of emotional detachment, unforgiveness, lack of trust, Parenting out of hurts, enabling, passivity, pride, controlling others, irresponsible, self-centeredness, perfection. You have all those issues. And I want them out of you. And the only way I can get you there is I've got to take down the, the, the sugar sticks that you have, and I've got to change your belief system. And if I can do that, you truly will taste what it's like to be free in Christ. And very few people ever experience that. See, a lot of believers go through life wandering in the desert. They're believers. They know their theology, and there's no doubt about it, but they can't live it. They won't have any joy. 
They will, they will see messages like this as doom and gloom, and, and this will just freak them out. And they're like, I, I just want to be told that I'm okay. I just want to be told that I'm all right. Well, that's not what the Scripture does. The Scripture says you're safe in Christ, but there's a lot of work to be done. And the pain of growing spiritually is what more, most people didn't bargain for. They didn't realize that. So what's happened is a lot of people have repeated the first year of their salvation for 30 years. They just keep repeating it. Have you ever noticed that some Christians, they act the same as 30 years ago? There's been no change virtually. Yes, they're saved. They know who Jesus is. They've gained knowledge, no doubt about that. They have more knowledge. They can, they can tell you how many angels dance on the head of a pin. Of course they can. They can tell you that Adam didn't have a navel. They got that figured out. Absolutely. But they can't live it. I'll tell you a story and we'll end on this. There's a man, he decided, you know what, Brandon? He goes, I'm going to make a commitment to grow, and, and, and I'm going to get to the heart of my issues, and, and uh, I'm willing to submit to the process. Okay. And along the way, the individual discovered a lot about himself. He discovered he wasn't the father he thought he really was. He discovered that, in fact, he thought he was a loving father, but what he was doing was actually hurting his family and his kids, and he had no understanding of that. Because what he was doing, he finally discovered that he had been enabling his family. Not just his immediate family, but his extended family. He was an enabler and always enabled people. We call them in the counseling world a codependent, but nonetheless, they're enablers. And he realized that, and he says, I haven't really been the loving man I thought I was. In fact, I've actually been hurting people because I won't hold people to consequences and limitations, and, and I'm letting people get away with murder and, let, and becoming a doormat for these people, and these people are taking advantage of me, and I thought I was just being a loving father. No, you weren't. You were actually hurting them. And he wised up to that. He got rid of his external structures. He, he, he saw the new belief that I don't have to be like that. That's not what God called me to do. He started putting consequences and limitations on his family. And I said, they're not going to like it. And he came back and, he, and they didn't like it. He goes, in fact, they got very angry at me. In fact, they cussed me out even. Yeah, I know, they will. Because you know what? You're finally putting consequences and limitations on the individuals and not enabling them. Isn't that great? He goes, no, it's very painful. I said, I know. Growth is painful, isn't it? When you take a stand and do the right thing and tell people, hey, no more. The limit is right here. You're going to get a pushback. That's what's been stopping you your whole life from setting limits and boundaries on your own family and your own kids. They're taking full advantage of you. And now you put the limitations and now they're cussing you out. Yeah. It's par for the course. But I can't tell you how many times that story is repeated to me over and over and over again. Not, not the same details, but issues going on in people's lives. And they finally said, I'm drawing the line. I'm done. And they finally move, get rid of the external structures. I, I, the external structure for this guy... He's given me permission to talk about it. Was he wanted the approval of his family? He wanted to be seen as Mr. Nice Guy, Mr. All Loving. And I said, Do you understand that that's not a biblical picture of God? That's just not a biblical picture of God. 
God tells the truth in love. He doesn't just simply give love with no boundaries. That's not love at all. He finally realized that because that's been wrong. I've been enabling people. And he pushed over to the other side. And he's growing and he's doing well. If you were to ask him, do you ever wish you hadn't started this process? He said, I used to. He goes, but I realize I can never go back. I can never go back to functioning as a dysfunctional father anymore. I can't. Now that I know the truth, I can't go back to that. And I won't. I understand it's cost me relationships. I get it. But I would rather be on the side of truth and be set free from my nonsense and have the whole world hate me rather than to keep enabling my family and be Mr. Christian nice guy. I said, bingo. That's it. And what did the guy do? He simply changed his external structures that kept him in the problem, and he changed his belief to get on the right track. That's all it took. That is what God is doing in the tribulation. And that's what he does for you and I, if we will submit to him. Thanks for downloading the Anchor Podcast. We hope this study was a blessing to you. Support for this podcast comes from your generous gifts and donations. For more information about our ministry, we invite you to check out our website, rockharborchurch.net. Also, check out our YouTube channel, Rock Harbor Church Prophecy Update, where we focus on signs of the times and present a wide range of sermons and discipleship lessons. So until next time, keep looking up, for our redemption draws near.